Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hi, my name is Graham Oliver, the founder member of Saxon, still rocking after all these years. And you're listening, listening to Talking Metal. It's going to rock the hairs off your legs. Be there or be square. This is Grace Maiden Metal Rhythm Guitar from Judas Priestess. And this is Militia Lead Vocals in Judas Priestess. And you're listening, listening to, to Talking, Talking Metal. Perfect. <laughs> this is Damon Fox from Big Elf, and you're listening to Talking Metal. You're one step closer to doom. Hello, this is Tony Iommi, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hi, this is Ozzy Osbourne, and you're listening to Talking Metal. <laughs> Everybody, what the hell's going on? This is Zach Wall from Black Label Society and the Ozzy Osbourne Band. And we're all doing a hang, throwing back some cold ones, and we're talking metal. Take it easy. This is Blasco from Ozzy Osbourne. You're listening to Talking Metal. Mark Striegel, John Astronomy, the Talking Metal Podcast. Coming to you from the Silver Spacecraft. I'm Bud Friendly. And now, your hosts, Mark and John. Hey guys, Happy New Year. John Astronomy here with Mark Striegel. Welcome to episode 335 of Talking Metal. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing good. We're here at Tonic, directly across the street from where we once had lunch with Richard Christie. I think at Pearl, wasn't it? Pearls, yeah. I was just watching that clip up on YouTube, and uh, you're eating, and I'm like stretching across the table holding a microphone over to Rich, Richard, um, who is coincidentally back in the studio with Charred Walls of the Dam doing a second record. Looking forward to hearing that. And uh, our first hang of the new year. So um, belated Happy New Year to uh, John Astronomy. Yeah, Happy New Year to you and your family as well, Mark. And we're really glad to be back. 2011 is going to be a great year for Talking Metal. We're going to tell you about all the cool stuff that's going to happen, including a brand new website. And I want to mention that that silver spacecraft is right out front. Yeah, it goes everywhere with us here at Talking Metal. We always have this silver spacecraft ready to go. On that note, here's a little Ozzy Osbourne.
that was Waiting for Darkness by the one, the only Ozzy Osbourne featuring Jakey Lee on the guitar. And Mark, I do want to clarify that the, the recent bird deaths and fish deaths are not due to the Silver Spacecraft's atmospheric influence on this, you know, planet. Correct, correct. We are very honored because we have uh, the founding, one of the founding members of the great band Saxon, always one of my favorites, uh, his name, Graham Oliver, and wow, he really has some great stories to to share with you guys today. Everything from hanging out with Randy Rhodes and Ozzy Osbourne back in the day to, uh, you know, touring with Saxon to seeing Hendrix play live to his recent shows that he's going to be doing. Uh, probably they may have already passed by the time you, heard, you hear this interview, but uh, with uh, Oliver... Dawson Saxon, which is basically uh, Steve Dawson and Graham Oliver, they go out and they play Saxon tunes, you know, the way they should be heard, and fun stuff. And of course, the band Saxon, Biff's version of Saxon, is also still out there. So, um, big thanks to Graham Oliver for joining us on Talking Metal. How about we get into a little old school Saxon right now, John? This is Heavy Metal Thunder by Saxon.
That was Heavy Metal Thunder by Saxon. That comes from 1980's Strong Arm of the Law. And you can get that on iTunes. Yeah, we'll uh, possibly throw a link up in today's show notes for that. So if you use those links to buy that song that, of course, helps Talking Metal, it's a great way to support what we do here. Yeah, so I'm excited. We are at some point this year, hopefully earlier this year, uh, 2011, going to have kind of uh, a new version of the site going up at TalkingMetal.com, which is the best place to keep in touch with us. Buy a Talking Metal t-shirt to show your support of Talking Metal. And uh, I guess we're ready to get into the interview with Graham Oliver, founding member of Saxon. How about we hear a little Oliver Dawson's Saxon with uh, their version, their live version of the Saxon classic, Power and the Glory, which is also up on iTunes. Uh, Just search Oliver Dawson Saxon. You'll see uh, they have a ton of uh, classic Saxon songs up there, live versions of them, that is. And uh, this sounds great. And it's just uh, Power and the Glory has always been one of my favorite records, not just by Saxon, but period. Great, Mark. So then after the track, we'll get into the interview, and then we'll end today's show with the track Annabelle, which comes from Graham Oliver's solo project, which is called End of an Era. And this is a great song. It's a little more alternative than metal, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thanks, guys. Send us an email at talkingmetal at yahoo.com. Here is Oliver Dawson Saxon with Power and the Glory live. And then right into our interview with Graham Oliver.
Hey, is that Mark? Yeah, it's it's uh, Mark Striegel. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, thank you for staying up late to uh, do this interview with us. We really appreciate yeah, I've been, it. I've been watching James Bond. Oh, very nice. What, <laughs> it was on TV. Uh, what era James Bond are you watching? Sean Connery or Roger Moore or the new guy? Actually, well, Pierce Brosnan, the Pierce. one that watches Bond, yeah. Right, very good. Well, thank you again, Graham, for joining us on Talking Metal. I know you are about to head out on the road, and you're going to be doing some more gigs with the Oliver Dawson Saxon. Um, That's right. We're doing three shows Thursday. Uh, we leave Thursday, and we're doing three in, uh, I think, one in Holland and two in Belgium. And then we, we're then just a week later, we do the Finland Metal Fest. Okay, cool. And what... When when fans go to see uh, one of these shows, are they getting all the the great old Saxon stuff that we love so much? Yeah, pretty much. Um, we have got a new album, so we always do some uh, new songs as well. And some of the songs, because when we first the first thing we did in um, when me and Steve Dawson got back together again with Pete Gill drumming, we, we, we did an album project. We called it Son of a Bitch, which obviously was Saxon's original name before we changed it to Saxon when they got a deal and um, back in 79 because we got told that there was no way under any circumstances could we use that name uh, in the United States. Uh, Things might be a little bit easier now, but I doubt it. But at the time, you know, it was just a big bitch, no-no. So. Bitch was a real dirty word back in 1979. Absolutely. Yeah. So we did, yeah, we do, it's not a really dirty word in, in English, it's not such a big deal. I mean, you hear John Wayne saying it all the time and people don't really look at it upon the same here in England. But we did, an, we did an album called Victim Mule, and it's a fantastic uh, album, it got some great reviews. But it sort of bubbled underground and never did anything really. Right. And the guy that was singing was an American guy called Ted Bullitt. He was from a band um, called Thunderhead, and at the time he was living in Germany. I think he's from Connecticut, but a fantastic singer. So we still do a couple of those songs. You can you can see some on YouTube. We've done some, right. but mainly it's the old Saxon ones. And with that much of a back catalogue, that we can really mix it up. You know, depending on what people want to hear. Very cool. And what what is the state of uh, Screaming Eagles at this point? Screaming Eagles is just something that I um, got asked to do in the summer. Uh, one of the old guys that replaced Steve Dawson put a band together called Screaming Eagles, and he was doing songs from that later period. Obviously, me and Steve Dawson don't play songs like um, uh, Battle Cry, and, and from those later albums, Rock the Nations. So uh, it was kind of interesting just standing in to do a couple of gigs with them, but that's all I've done. It's not it's not anything that's permanent. It was just it was just me, you know, just sort of being a, a guest, uh, just for a bit of fun, really. Right. Okay. I think they'd like it to be more, but I haven't got the time. You know. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you... my own my new album and my new stuff. You know. So well, tell us about about the new album. Who uh, who is producing it with you? Are you guys self-producing it, or do you have an outside producer working on it with you? Well, we actually started it five years ago in a studio 
in Wales, in England, and the studio was set up um, by a guy who was something to do with the Lost Prophets. And this guy set up a studio and he bought the entire um, equipment from Gary Barlow, take that. Just before they take that, such as had the, had the, the big successful comeback that just had recently. So he, he had some fantastic equipment because Gary Barlow re equipped uh, to start doing the new songs. And so this guy bought all this equipment and we started making this album. And then unfortunately, um, they weren't that good business people and they went into liquidation, which trapped our hard drives in with their, all their equipment. It's not like these days having multi-tracks and big reels of data that you can sort of take with you every night when you leave. Everything's sort of built into Pro Tools, as you well probably know about modern recording. Sure. So we spent a year doing that, and then, it went to, and then we got sort of frustrated by this process that happened before the studio. And then... About 18 months ago, we actually managed to free our intellectual property, as they call it. Wow, okay. So, yeah, so we, so we, we relocated to a studio in Wigan uh, under a guy who used to work with um, John uh, Astley, which is Pete Townsend's uh, brother-in-law. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and so we finished off the album, and it took us another year, but it sounded really fantastic and, and is this uh, this is a music wise this is going to be a, a straight ahead heavy metal record it is i mean some of the tracks could have come straight off wheels of steel wow but it's not it's not intentional it's just that me and steve dawson were like a little bit like tony Naomi and geezer butler sure where in, in fact when we play together we just sound like we sound and and live we sound like early Saxons because that's what we are. We're not capable of being something different. So it comes out like that when we write. Although we've got a guitarist called Hayden who's from Barnsley, so the entire band, apart from the singer, Wardy, is still from, from Barnsley, you know, the Barnsley area of England. Okay. And so the, um, but as soon as it's finished, I'll send you a copy and you can, you know, maybe review it or whatever. Oh, you bet. Yeah. We would love to play it here on, yeah. on Talking Metal and uh, the Mark's. Yeah, we'll do that. No problem. Just email you the, your address and we'll post you on out, yeah. When, but at the when, moment, we're, talk, we're talking to two or three record companies. Um, there's no actual release date at this point? No. Um, the Christmas break, obviously, is just finished. And everything shuts down from like first week of December to basically today. So um, everybody's getting back into the offices now. Okay. Uh, there's a guy in Los Angeles got a copy of the album. There's a guy in Germany got a copy of the album. And there's a record company in London. So, but it's very tough out there. I've heard that even Biff can't get a record deal at the moment with his version of Saxon. You know. Right. So it's pretty tough, you know, because. Um, but you're thinking probably definitely this year, sometime in 2011, we'll be hearing this record. Oh, definitely, yeah. Awesome. It's all finished, ready. We just got we just got to finalize the name, which we... There's one song called Motorbiker, and we were talking with 
playing about calling the album that, but at the moment it was just a working title, just to have something to work with. But it's that's one of the main songs on it, you know, Motorbiker. It's that, it's that, you know, Wheels of Steel, that kind of. Yeah. That kind of area. But there's, there's, a, there's a couple of songs. There's, there's one song on there that we, that was inspired by um, Lady Gaga. We didn't really. She did a TV show in England, and she dedicated a song to Alexander McQueen. So we, we wrote a song called Just Another Suicide, and it's a really. It's like, um, I keep mentioning Wheels of Steel, but when we did that, we did sort of heavy metal thunder type songs or, you know, um, Machine Gun, which were fast songs. Then we did things like Susie Hold On, which had got real melody. And, and this this is like the Susie Hold On of our album. Um, and it's a real, um, well, I suppose you'd call it a kind of ballad song, although the... the, the Lyrical context isn't really about a ballad. It's, it's about torment and anguish, you know. But it's a really good, you know, but it'll be interesting to see what people make of it when they listen to it. I'll, I'll find that intriguing, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Uh, yeah. You've been staying busy with, I guess you could call it a non-musical project, too. You're, you're writing a, a book with Steve, and this That's is going right. to actually include a foreword by the one and only uh, Harry Shear, I understand. Yes, well, because when Harry Shear, he came on the road in 1982 with, right. with for one week. Now, our manager, Nigel Thomas, at the time, is is since passed on, but he used to manage Joe Cocker, uh, Leon Russell, and all kinds of people. And he invested money in movies uh, and he was a personal friend of um, the guy that did Blade Runner and Gladiator uh, whose name I should uh, know the guy who did Gladi- Gladiator and Blade Runner was uh, oh um, <laughs> we should both know that I know I'm having a senior moment Ridley, Ridley Scott Ridley, Ridley Scott, Scott. Right? so Ridley Scott produced one of our videos Power and the Glory Wow, wow. Which, which, which not many people know. And it was through that connection of, of movie makers that uh, Harry Shearer came so, on our tour for a week. But we didn't know who, the heck, who he was. He wasn't really a famous guy then. And we didn't really know what he was researching. So when we'd done playing, he, he, he used to sit in the hotel bars and we just used to relate stories. And one of the stories was about when I played with Motorhead, uh, when Saxon opened for Motorhead in 79 in London, and Motorhead used dry ice, and they used to test it at soundcheck. And the stage was wet, so I used to start the set with Motorcycle Man, where I'd run into the middle of the stage and um, play in the intro. Or if it's only an A chord... Um, before you know, I played solo before the band come in, but I went I, w- I went flying and landed on my back, and Rob Price, my guitar tech, he ran on and lifted me up in the middle of the stage in the spotlight, still playing this riff, and we told him this story, and that's in the movie, which, and he actually did a, an interview in Mojo magazine a couple of years ago, well, about eighteen months ago. And he said that um, he did actually base his entire character on Steve Dawson wow. with the moustache and everything, and the one hand in the air while he's playing open air speaking, you know, which Steve did, you know, and 
we, we kind of knew this, but we didn't. We, it was confirmed to us because I think every band likes to think that they're the part in Spinal Tap, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or whatever. And, right. Well, it, I mean, it was, I, it's been rumored, and we've heard stories that that. Um, you know, Saxon was an influence on, and that even Harry was on tour with you guys. But I never knew that he that's actually right, yeah. that he. You guys then, should get yeah. a writing credit for that. I mean, that's an that's like they're just mimicking what happened to you in real life. That's amazing. That's right. But sometimes when you watch it, we do feel a bit uncomfortable watching it in yeah. a funny kind of way. But um, we had a meeting with Harry Shearer for three hours, and that interview was uh, recorded and. Some of that is going to be featured in the book because this book is it's, it's going to be really a funny book. You know, it's sex and drugs and rock and roll, the real spinal tap. And Harry offered to write the foreword for it. He did it in characters, Derek's balls, you know. So we have Very the picture cool. and everything. It's fantastic. So but it took a long time doing. But me and Steve have been at this now for about three years because obviously we've been doing other things and. We're not brilliant uh, typewriting people. Yeah. So, you know, like with one finger, it takes all night to do a page. So we've actually been, got other people to help us start writing this. And we keep breaking off from it and going back to it. But there's going to be a lot of archive photos in as well. So it's an interesting thing to look at as the pictures as well as, I mean, because we have loads of stories about Ozzy Osbourne. And, well, I mean, we were, we were, it was, we started in the punk period, right? Uh, and supporting the Clash and oh, wow. Sex Pistols, and then we ended up going through all those different phases of music, you know, uh, from Motorhead to Iron Maiden. We always used to do gigs together, and then all the Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Motley Crue. I mean, we we toured America with Motley Crue and Rush, and such a diverse kind of a number of years where we sort of transgressed every every kind of music um, right. where we are now, you know. I, the Which first, was really interesting period. The first time I saw you play was on the, the Crusader tour when with Motley Crue, and that was just, uh, it was in the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, and it was just... Oh, uh, well, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that was such a great show. I, I, I was a fan of both bands. I mean, Heavy Penton opened, and then it was Saxon, and then Crue, and I was a yeah. fan of both Saxon and Motley Crue, but that night, yeah. you guys ruled that night, uh, definitely. Oh, cool, that's good. Blowing and that, the, the crew that off ballroom the stage. Is, that's where the famous movie was. Wasn't the Addigan Ballroom where they shot the movie, yeah? Uh, what movie was that? I'm not sure. I can't remember that. I know that I remember that gig. I can remember it. Because I, yeah. I think Bill Ludwig came to that gig as well because of the drumming, you know, of Tommy Lee and Nigel Lockler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, just a great memory for me. And, uh, you know, that was, again, on the Crusader tour for you guys, but my, one of my favorite Saxon records, and actually one of my favorite records of all time, is Power and the Glory. Any memories you can share about making that record? It yeah, seemed like I it mean, was maybe a, a, a more slick sound in some ways for you guys than what had come yeah. beforehand, but it's still... I mean, we, got, we, got, we got actually slated for doing um, Crusader. They said it was too American. And then in England, the Kerrang people said it was... Uh, well, they said it was too American, and then America used to... Some, some radios wouldn't play it, and it was too English heavy metal. So you sort of caught between a rock and an R play for a while. You didn't know which way to go, you know. But 
power and the glory we did in Atlanta. And um, a lot of the riffs for those songs I wrote on the, on the old trusty SG. Um, Paul Quinn and Steve Dawson did The Eagle Landed. And I remember doing um, about a month in the studio with a producer called Jeff Glicksman, who done, I think, Ingvay Mouse team and quite a lot of those type of guitar bands. Yeah. And so this, there's actually an album called Diamonds and Nuggets, which is on Angel Air, which is a whole bunch of studio outtakes. And there's actually a couple of songs on there that didn't make it to Power and the Glory. Oh, yeah? Which is pretty good songs, yeah. Make them rocks, one of them, yeah. And, um, and that's called Diamonds and Nuggets. Diamonds and Nuggets. And that's a Saxon record. That's under the Saxon. It is. It's, it's, all it is is unreleased Saxon songs. There's like a full... Because you see, in those days, you could only get 27 minutes. Right. So no DVDs, uh, CDs or whatever. So you were really limited to vinyl. And um, so there are always a lot of outtakes where now you can put more tracks on. It's not the case as much. But... Um, Diamonds and Nuggets, it's on an out, an, a, a record company called Angel Air. So if you Google it, you'll probably find it, but there's some real rarities on that. Wow. Um, some, everything, everything on there is totally unreleased, plus a couple of outtakes from, from that recording session. And is it a but legitimate remember, record that's like sanctioned by you guys, or is it more like yeah, kind of a bootleg? Yeah, everybody, everybody agreed to put it out, um, who played on it, which included... Uh, Paul Quinn and Biff and Nigel Lockley. Yeah, they all they all get royalties from it. It was it was sanctioned properly. It's a proper album. And there's a booklet with it with some real interesting rare photographs and things. I think you'd find it interesting. I mean, if you wrote to the the guy's called Peter Purnell, and um, he'd probably send you a copy if if you wrote to him. Or you might find one over in America on eBay or something. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love yeah. to check that out. I haven't got. If I got a copy, I'd send it you. But I, I, I lost my copy a long time ago. People, uh, you know, borrow it and shit and stuff like that. And I've ended up recently buying a couple of albums in America off eBay just because I haven't got them. One in particular was um, the uh, Second Wave, where we did five tracks. The Girl School did five tracks. Tigers of Pantang did five tracks. Right. And, and ODS, because we just call ourselves ODS, like R.E.M., really. We sort of trying to ditch the Oliver Dawson tracks and being just used to have, like, just the, the ODS. But anyway, we did five tracks each, and that album came out, but it sort of come out and died. It never got distributed properly. And it's called Second Wave. And um, there's some good stuff on there, and... Uh, I hadn't got a copy because I think I did a radio interview, so I took mine and it, I played a track and kept it, you know, because uh, we did some gigs with girls' school and on on a bit of a tour. And um, so I ended up having to buy it back myself, which I have to because it's been deleted now. You can't get it, you know. Cool. Now, uh, again, uh, I wanted to ask you about touring with Motley Crue any crazy memories of just being on tour with that band? Were you guys social with them back in the Yes, we used, to, we used to party every night, but I'm, I'm a bit like Mick Mars. Um, I'm not such a party animal as the other guys. 
Um, but we used to have some wild times um, with Vince Neil, particularly in Nicky Six. Right. Uh, Tommy Lee were always off with girls. I mean, he'd just disappear with an handful of girls every night with a Polaroid camera. And then he had a briefcase full of Polaroids, which he'd uh, fetch to the gig the day after to everybody, wow. which some of them Polaroids are somewhere. But that tour that we did when Molly Crew was just breaking, massive, um, and they were using the lace and the makeup. It was a real um, turning point because I think Japan went crazy for that kind of look. Um, you know, the, the fans in Japan. And I remember playing Bakersfield and the girls there that just do anything. I mean, it was a real, a real fantastic time to tour. And we sort of covered it in the. Uh, there was a there was somebody who I met called Kathy Bloomingdale, and she owned the Bloomingdale um, family from New York. Right, sure. So what she's doing now that she was following um, Molly Crew around, and I, I I got to meet her, and, and I think in the end she sort of took off with. Uh, Vince Neil, I also remember that. Vince so, Neil, me and my girl, you know. <laughs> so, Kathy Bloomingdale, she was from the Bloomingdale family who owned the big stores. Yeah, that's what, States, that's, so. what, that's what she told me, whether it was true or not. But yeah. I think it was true, you know. She wow. already tell fibs, you know. Yeah, so there were wild times in those days. I remember doing all those gigs and just a fantastic time. I used to love to in America. I love the, I love the audiences. I love some of the musicians that used to hang out and come and visit us. You know, like Mark Ferrari used to turn up at the hotel and we'd jam, you know. Um, Mark, Mark Ferrari. Well, I, remember playing, I remember playing the Whiskey A Go-Go. It was sold out for four nights. Wow. And our support group was Metallica and Rat. And um, Ozzy Osbourne came to visit us. It was one week after Randy Rhodes had been killed. But we didn't, we, we didn't really know what to say to Ozzy because he was distraught. I mean, what, what could you say to the guy? You know, we were looking forward to playing the whiskey and um, it was a big moment for us and, and Ozzy was in such a state. We didn't know, you know, we sort of tried to do his best to sort of console him, but you just couldn't, you know. There's just nothing you could do or say. That's, that's a memory I've got that sort of tarnished our debut in, in Los Angeles, but, you know, it, it couldn't be helped. It was just, a really horrible thing that happened. Yeah, it really was. And, yeah, and I remember it, at the end of the night, there were a knock on door, and our tour manager came in and said, there's a young Los Angeles band here, and they want to meet you. Their favorite all-time song is Motorcycle Man. And it was Motley Crue, and they trooped in, and that was before they were famous. Wow. Oh, they were just breaking in LA, you know, so tours we'd never heard of them. And then a year later, or Nearly a couple of years later, we're supporting. We we actually supporting them, which was strange, you know, quirk of fate. So, you there's so much stuff uh, we could talk about, but let's. Uh, you mentioned Metallica opening up for you uh, in in LA. Yeah. There, Lars uh, Ulrich has gone on to be one of the probably most famous, you know, rock stars. Be you know beyond just a heavy metal star of all time and and one of his favorite bands of all time is is Saxon. Any memories of uh hanging with Lars or meeting Lars? 
Well, when we first, we didn't, because Ozzy came to the dressing room with Sharon that night in the whiskey, we never got to uh, see the band properly. We, we snuck, I snuck out and watched a little bit of the show because I remember this blonde head, head guitarist with a flying V going notes, and I think that was uh, Dave Mustaine because I think, I think, um, he was still in the I band. I think James had the black flying V. Oh, okay. And that's my memory of that night. And and this drummer that were like, a bit like Filthy Animal. Um, you know, like sort of smashing the drums. But um, every time they play Sheffield, which they've done over the, over the last 20 years, they always invite myself and Steve Dawson. They, they really look after us. And last year when they came to tour, was that in Sheffield Arena, and when the lights went dim for Metallica to come on the stage, the song that they took to the stage with to play the soul uh, to play their show was um, Heavy Metal Thunder <laughs> with, with with my guitar solo. So I'm sat there with my guitar solos winging out, and there's all these young kids going crazy that Metallica are walking on stage. And I thought, if I tell these kids now around me that this is my, this is me playing this, they think I'm a crazy old man, you know. Right. You know, so I'm only 57, so it seems pretty old to me now, you know. So, but that's that 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 was really surreal, and they use that to play on just on all around the world. It's on, I've seen it on YouTube in Brazil, you know. Yeah. Which is amazing. Um, and uh, and Lars just said that one of his favourite drummers was Pete Gill. Of all time, you know, and um, in fact, um, the first thing that uh, that the um, that they said to me was, um, well, James said to me, and uh, have you still got that white SG with Jimi Hendrix painted on it? And and Kirk said that. He was in the audience in San Francisco and played the Keystone. It was just, a, you know, like a guy in the audience, a kid then. And uh, I was using that guitar and the fly, white flying beard. It was a big influence. In fact, if you look at early pictures of Kirk Hammett and myself, uh, Donington with the moustache and the white pea and stuff, um, there's a lot of similarities yeah. in his look, in my look, uh, whether it's coincidental. I like to think also... It's not, you know, I think, I think they definitely took the look of, of the early Saxon with the spandex and that kind of thing. But um, interestingly enough, the support band at the Keystone in San Francisco in the Bay Area that night was um, Cliff Burton's trauma. Oh, wow. And there's, there's photographs somewhere of uh, us together with trauma. Uh, on the internet, I didn't see one. I think some guy who was in Hawaii took some photos of that night, you know, and posted them on the internet somewhere. So um, I don't know if you go if you go on my MySpace uh, site. I don't know if you remember MySpace, but you can easily register. If not, I've put a ton of photographs on there, old and new, and a load of tour passes. So if there's anything you ever need to download, you know, you can. I think you can pull things off there. You know, like Ozzy Osbourne um, backstage pass, because actually when we played Germany once, Ozzy Osbourne was our support band, because Saxon were that big in wow. 1980, you know. 
like I got to hang out with Randy Rhodes and he played my flying V and you know, all kinds of stuff. You know, I'd like to talk to guys at Gibson, you know, but it's pretty hard getting through to him sometimes. Yeah. You know? Well, I was gonna a couple a couple th- things I wanted to cover before we let you go, but uh, let's. You mentioned your MySpace page. Can you give the the exact website? It's obviously myspace.com yeah, slash. It, 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 it's 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 MySpace forward slash uh, Graham Oliver Solo. Graham Oliver. So you'll find Solo. you'll find it that easy. Okay. Just Graham Oliver, yeah, MySpace, Graham Oliver Solo, and I think even if you click on to Google now in England, it comes up under Google, you know. Okay, good. And, well, we'll we'll be sure for the listeners out there uh, who are listening to this podcast, we'll be sure to link that in today's show notes on TalkingMetal dot com. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, let's talk about Gibson. What What are your? I know you're a, a big player of Gibson guitars. What are some of your favorite Gibson models to play? Well, my SG, which I bought in 1972, I still use that guitar, and it took me like years to pay for it. You know, on a weekly payment basis, and um, I've had that guitar throughout my my entire career, and I still use it from time to time. And then in 79, I bought a, uh, we was actually on the Motorhead tour, the Bomber tour. I bought a, a brand new flying V. It's a 79. It's, it's, it's a whitey cream color, but it's got block inlays. And apparently the block inlays are really, really rare. And Randy Rhodes wanted to swap me one of his sport guitars, it's Jackson's, for this flying V. But I didn't really like the the Charvel Jackson's, I mean, I think it joined the body of the 13th Fretos. You couldn't really play it up the neck, you know, it was really tough to play. I think Randy used to use, use it occasionally. In fact, that tour, it nearly, it nearly 90% used the white Les Paul. But uh, we used to swap guitars. Randy had played my Flying B, and um, I'd play Spotted Guitar with the Red House in B. But... Um, so that's one of my favourite guitars. I'd never really, I'd never really swap it or get rid of it now. But uh, I think Flying V's and I mean and, and SG's are my favourite Gibsons. Excellent. I've got a couple of SG's, you know. Um, I've got a beautiful Pelham Blue one that I use, which is an SG uh, 90, an 88 model with Trini Lopez inlays, and that's a favourite, you know. I just use it for like recording and stuff. Then I'm going to, you know, that's been my main interest. I've got a couple of fenders and things like that, and modern guitars, because sometimes you have to do the modern trem stuff, you know, just to right. keep, keep up with things. But my main squeeze is my, my old SGM Flying V. Excellent. Now, you mentioned uh, Randy Rhodes uh, again, and now they, Ozzy, again, was, when you guys were touring with Ozzy, that was. Uh, with Rudy Sarzo and Tommy yep, Aldridge, right. I believe, yep. which would be, was that when they were supporting Diary, I guess, right? Diary yeah, that's Manor, right. Manor. That was the, the German tour in 1980, and um, we France as well. And funnily enough, on the last show in Germany, all the band turned up at Soundcheck, and we used to go and watch Soundcheck every, because we used to, I mean, Pete, we used to love watching Tommy Aldridge and stuff, you know. Yeah. A sound check and, and Randy, so um, they all they all set up and ready to play. This is about seven thirty, about five minutes before our doors opened, and the tour manager came in and said to the crew, "I right, get all the gear off stage." And the band was saying, "Why? What's happened?" 
Aussies in London with Sharon. <laughs> so he right. just took off to London from Germany. Never even told his band, you know. <laughs> the only Aussie could do that and get away with it, you know. And then he can't. There was a. There was I, obviously that show was cancelled, and then he cancelled. Well, it was cancelled for all these. We, we still played, obviously. Yeah. But there were some people pissed who, who well, big Aussie fans, you know. Yeah. The Germans, but the show went to that. But it was a shame, really, you know. Yeah. That, that that was a memory of of that and um, and just hanging out with Randy really and talking guitars. I mean, he spent more time playing guitar, you know, in his dressing room than any other guitarist I've ever known. Wow. Plus that and doing his hair with an hairdryer, it was really meticulous about how he looked. He really yeah, took care of his appearance, you know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And just recently, I've had the pleasure of uh, working in Italy with. Um, Holy John Ross. Oh wow! Uh, there's some pictures on MySpace of me and Holy together on my on my MySpace, and uh, we did a bunch of Hendrix stuff and early um, early uh, Scorpions, Paul and Knights and things. We played L'Aquila, which was devastated by an earthquake just before it was destroyed. You know, so it was really good. I've I've been enjoying playing with other guitar players, and so to doing different things this last 10 years. Whereas before, you know, in my early years, it was just straight sax and then never deviated from doing his own songs. Right. Whereas I've, I've been doing, I mean, Hendrix stuff, I, bought, I saw Jimi Hendrix play in 1967 when I was a kid at Sheffield. So I've always been a massive fan all my life. In fact, when I came to America, one of the first things I did in Seattle was visit his father and... Um, his grandmother, she was 101 when I met Nora. Wow. I, I told Uri uh, Roth that I'd met Nora, and he goes, you met Nora? I said, yeah. He couldn't believe it. Wow. Uh, and they were really nice. Al Hendricks was really a gentleman and showed me all Jimmy's uh, gear, what he got at the house in near Renton. Um, that was really interesting. And um, Well, I bet, I bet, you know, when, when people like you would go to visit Jimmy's family, that really probably had to make them happy too, you know, because yeah, you were going it to did. pay well, your respect. Him, and... I read that Al Hendricks used to play the spoons, you know, which is a really funny thing in England. People do it when the drunk at parties play the spoons. I don't know if it's something that Americans, they, if you're they familiar play the, with it, play, play like spoons? Like, yeah, you put it, two spoons together and right. you, you bang them out. It's something like, you know, it's. And, Al, and I said to Al Hendricks, do you, do you still play the spoons out? He says, no, I eat my soup with them now, <laughs> which was a really funny thing for him to say. Yeah. But one of the funniest things, because I said to him, you know, I come in the phone book, so he says, well, if I went in the phone book, you wouldn't be able to phone me up and come and visit, which was true, you know. And then I got home from that tour, and we'd just done a, a few gigs with Iron Maiden in America as well. And... Uh, Dave Money knew that I'd been to see Al Hendricks because he's a massive Hendricks fan. And he phoned me up uh, in England. He was in Seattle. They'd just done a show. And it was, it was. I think he got me out of bed. He said, it's Graham, it's Dave Murray. You haven't got Al's number. I want to go and visit him. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so I, n I never knew if he did that. I, I never asked him if he went to visit, but... Um, that, that was strange day, Murray ringing me in the early hours of the morning for Alan Hendricks' number. Yeah. Wow. That was 
strange thing. Yeah. So all these things are going in the book, obviously, you know, but like you said, there's a ton of stuff because it just covers a, such a long period and such a, a diverse, you know, kind of stuff that we got up to. I mean, one of the highlights of my life were touring with Rush, the first American tour, because every gig was sold out, Philly Spectrum, you know, and Rush were doing stuff like Tom Sawyer, uh, Limelight, just before they released the album. Okay. So they're trying these songs out. So I went to see Rush on the last English tour, and it just fetched so many memories about you know. Yeah, sure, sure. Mm. And uh, before before we let you go, I wanted to uh, ask you about your son, Paul. Is he still uh, playing drums? Yes, he is. He's actually playing drums for me this, uh, in Belgium this next three days. Oh, excellent! Uh, because cool. uh, Nigel Durham um, is torn a muscle in his arm. He did it about four years ago. And it, it will not heal. After he's done about two or three gigs, he gets into real serious pain. And in fact, he can't he can't play properly. And it it keeps it keeps it's like a reoccurring Ill, um, uh, injury. And it got that bad in Finland before Christmas in there that he's got to have a year off to let it heal properly. He's been told by the specialist oh. that if he doesn't let it heal properly, when he goes to it. Hit the symbols, and the specialist told him if he doesn't let it heal properly, he'll do serious damage for life that is irreversible. So that's what he's got to do. And so my son is a great. I mean, the son actually drums for more credit sound checks because my son Paul used to be a drummer for uh, 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 the the um, drum tech for Nigel Glockler for about oh really okay seven, yeah for seven years. And he played, so, and Paul actually played on your solo record too, End of Era. He did, yes, yeah. he did. So he did that. And um, he's, he's, a real, he's, he's a bit like Pete Gill, although he, he was friends with Nigel Glockler. He was very much influenced by Gill's kind of playing. And he's that kind of player. So the last couple of shows we've done and rehearsals with Paul, um, it's strange playing those Wheels of Steel songs with a single kit with that kind of Pete Gill feel again. In fact, it's been quite enlightening and, and enjoyable, you know, because Nigel's very much the like um, an 80s rock drummer, you know, yeah. twirling the sticks and double kicks all over the place, you know. Right. So you start playing the riffs with different accents um, and you get into some, not bad habits, but, the, the, you know, the, the little things creep into the song, so... When Paul came in, we took the songs way back and we had to learn them again, how they were written in the first place, which is a good thing, you know. Right. Cool. Well, Graham, thank you so much for coming on the Talking Metal podcast. We really appreciate it. I hope it. people can understand my accent. Oh, yeah. Because, I, could, I could understand you for sure. For sure. Yeah, okay, because I was sometimes I had a problem. If I'd have written on it, I should have talked a little bit slower up. But, you know, because if you're saying we're going to the bar, they understand us, and what was Yorkshire people, if we were to we said to us American friends, we're going to the bar, and they think, hey, say what, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, well, was, I, I, so I, if I, you're saying we're going to the bar, then they all choose to understand us, so... No, I, I so, could understand probably 98% of everything you said. So, no, <laughs> so I don't have to I think we're good. But if we could get you saying uh, your name and you are listening to Talking Metal before we let you go, uh, that would be yes. great. Anytime you're ready. Okay. Hi, my name is Graham Oliver, the founder member of Saxon, still rocking after all these years. And you're listen, listening to Talking Metal. It's going to rock the hairs off your legs.
Be there or be square. <laughs> Great ID. Thank you very much, Graham. And uh, we can't wait to read the book. We can't wait to hear the new music. Uh, okay. I have your I have your email. I have your home phone number here, so I will be in touch. I'm going to uh, okay. be on you to hear this stuff and read read the book. Yeah, don't forget to mail me your address so I can send you the album. I will do that. Thank you very okay. much for your time, and thanks for staying up late to talk to us. Okay, Mark, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to See you, you soon. soon. All right. Bye. Take care. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.